And the dean said, okay. And I said, can I have that in writing? Yeah. And I got it in writing. And then I went to the head of the pharmacology department, and I did the same thing. Will you count the biochemistry course and the physiology course and uh, from medical school for your PhD in pharmacology? Yes. Ah, can I have that in writing, please? <laughs> Great. When I went to actually get my PhD, they called me into an office and said, Anne, it looks like you're getting your PhD in one year. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome back to Stimulating Brains, episode number 23. It's my great honor to present this conversation I had with Anne Young, who is um, the Julian Dorn Distinguished Professor of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Professor Young had an amazing career with a lot of highlights that we all cover, including discovery of glutamate as a neurotransmitter um, the Albin DeLong um, basal ganglia model, so, so in, in her part, the, the part that was discovered by um, Roger Albin herself and then her late husband, John Penny, and then multiple other things. We also talk about career building advice and so on, because Anne Young was uh, the chief of neurology at Mass General Hospital, which is um, sometimes referred to as the best hospital in the world, or one of the best, definitely. Her aim was to build the best neurology service in the world when she um, was appointed chief there. And she certainly created a very exciting neurology service at MGH. She was also president of both the ANA and the SFN, which uh, nobody else has so far mastered to do. So I'm pretty sure you liked the conversation we had. Um, and it also directly builds upon the last episode we had with Mei-Lon DeLong, um, because as mentioned, Anne Young also contributed massively to um, our understanding of the cortex basal ganglia circuit model. So have fun and thanks for tuning in Simulating Brains episode number 23. So Professor Young, it's such a great honor to, um, to be able to interview. Thanks so much for taking part in this. Sure. I will have um, more formally introduced you by now, so we can directly start with the questions. So. I always ask uh, to break the ice. Um, what do you do when not involved in, in science or medicine? Uh, I mean, you are retired, so you have probably more time now, but any hobbies or, or activities that you pursue? Well, yeah, I like to, uh, I live right on a lake up here in New Hampshire, and we have all sorts of wildlife. So I've rigged my yard with all sorts of motion activated cameras that record all the wildlife at night and during the day and uh it's really fun oh, that's amazing and, yeah and then the lake is just delicious for swimming so right around now is swimming for a few months and that's really nice and Very then nice. this 
we're up uh, and I take walks every day with the dog. It's lovely. I read. Great. Yep. Super. That sounds really cool. I, I'd love to see some footage of the wildlife cameras. That must be must be nice to explore. I, it's a great yeah. hobby. I can totally get that. So, so as a kid, speaking of um, animals, you, yeah, according to your Wikipedia page, based on your feisty nature, quote unquote, um, uh, earned you the nickname of Tiger Annie. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Like, how was life growing up for you? Oh, yeah. Well, um, my mother uh, wanted me to be a sweet little girl. I was, I had a brother, an older brother. Uh, but I was unfortunately a tomboy. <laughs> and okay. so she had to put up with me tearing around in t-shirts and jeans and, you know, getting dirty and exploring up in the woods. And so I, um, I had a neighborhood. I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of little kids like me. And so there were, several little boys and I used to be terrors of the neighborhood and that was uh, fun and um, <laughs> we just and my dad was uh, kind of impressed with my feistiness I used to get in fights at school okay so uh, I would um, come home with sore knuckles and such and, and my dad would um, He's the one who called me Tiger Annie. Okay. And uh, <laughs> he would try to teach me how to fight better. But yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so he, that's great. He supported that. Very nice. So, so we can get uh, already some, some uh, picture of you uh, now. But let's speak about your professional career. That, that's, of, of course, what we are here to talk about. Who were mentors that, that clearly stuck out in your career and also maybe turning points? What, what was important um, to get where you got? Uh, well, the most important person was Saul Snyder at, at Hopkins. Um, you know, he accepted me in his lab and uh, uh, really let me do kind of what I wanted. He always had something for you to work on. But he also, if you came to him with a problem and you had a series of experiments, he would often say, sure, go for it. And um, that was uh, wonderful. And then when I got uh, to the University of Michigan, the um, chair who recruited me, um, Sid Gilman, He was fantastic. He um, helped me with all my grants, helped me interact with the people down at NIH. Um, he was very helpful. And uh, then that was kind of about it. The rest That's I great. did on my own, I think. Sounds great. So, so, and I mean, you, the, your research career has been filled with highlights. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I think uh, we, we'll just try to get through them if we um, have the time. And, and um, I think one of the, the key things um, is that your research provided some of the first evidence that glutamate was a neurotransmitter of, um, I think, in your study of cerebe cerebellar granule cells. Um, but it also, I think, in, in general, provided first evidence or, or 
important evidence that glutamate was a neurotransmitter. Can you tell us more about maybe yeah. how it was back in the time? And yeah, yeah, sure. Well, back in the time, um, acetylcholine, norepinephrine, serotonin, epinephrine, and for some people, GABA. They were all probable neurotransmitters, but acetylcholine for sure, and some of those others for sure. GABA, there was some yes and no. Eccles then sort of came in, and these set of physiologists, it was funny, um, back then, the physiologists tended to be the neurologists and or or neurophysiologists and the um pharmacologists were the psychiatrists and um the so it was interested the psychiatrist couldn't care less what the granule cells use <laughs> neurotransmitter and or for that matter the corticospinal tract so um the first thing did with the cerebellar granule cells was that uh, my husband was working in a lab that was using viruses to attack certain dividing cells. Okay. And he comes back to me and he says, you know, there's this woman in our lab who can just take away all the granule cells and leave the other cells intact. And I said, whoa, what a perfect model to find out what the transmitter is. So I went to the woman who had been looking at this model, Mary Lou Ostergranit, and um, she, I said, can I get a litter of your hamsters without any granule cells yeah. for several weeks in a row? And she said, sure. And I could do these experiments. I think it took three different weekend experiments to show one there was no change in acetylcholine serotonin none of that amino acids the only ones that were changed were glutamate and aspartate so in the next set of experiments it turns out that glutamate and aspartate have been found to have both a high affinity uptake system and a low affinity uptake system. And it was the low affinity uptake system that was associated with just cellular metabolism. But many people thought, and in particular saw, uh, thought, well, glutamate, a high um, affinity uptake system, well, that could be a neurotransmitter inactivation. So, um, we looked that weekend at aspartate and glutamate uptake, and it was the high affinity uptake that was changed. And then the next weekend, we got an amino acid analyzer to look at some samples. And yes, um, only glutamate levels were changed, not aspartate. So that was pretty good evidence. And um, Nobody did much else about that. Um, when we got to the University of Michigan, um, several years later, we started working 
uh, on the um, um, corticospinal tract. Yeah. And that ended up likely being glutamate as well. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, very, very cool. So, so it is even, you know, it's so fundamental now that it makes it hard for us younger people to even imagine a world without this particular knowledge that glutamate is a neurotransmitter. So, you know, it's obvious we learn it. Obviously, it's cool. And um, even in, in high school, probably. Um, and uh, so, so why, I, I think it establishing glutamate as a neurotransmitter was, was the slow process, according to um, the internet over a period of 20 years dating back from the 50s, I think back then somebody in injected glutamate into the um, ventricular system and, and showed that there were some uh, cramps following. Is, is that, is that yeah, true? and they were also squirting it on, um, on cell bodies and seeing yeah. what kind of reaction. And, um, and it was a mix of reactions, some excitatory and some spreading depression. And again, it, you know, when you looked at the physiology, it wasn't that helpful about defining a pathway. Makes sense. Um, yeah. And um, so, yeah, it, it went along slowly. And, and, and I, I wanted to be in that field because I figured it was going to be slow and I wouldn't have to look at a whole lot of competition. And okay. then the next thing you know, boom. Everybody and their brother is working on it. So interesting. So, so you 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 saw an uptake of this field um, taking off once you published these results. Is that yeah? Is that, okay. So why did it why did why did it take so long? Is so I read that you know since glutamate is essentially everywhere in the body, maybe yeah. that's why nobody suspected it. Because as you mentioned before, so at least what I read, you know, it was decades after the identification of acetylcholine, norepinephrine and serotonin, also dopamine, I think was, was known. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, so, and, but, but you could argue glutamate is the most important one maybe, right. Or the most ubiquitous one. So why was that one discovered so late? Um, is, is that oh, it, all the amino acids were suspect because, um, they had such an important role in general cellular metabolism, particularly glutamate. And um, it was the fact that you could look um, at brain concentrations of, and they were high compared to other organs, but okay. were they huge? No, but mm. they were high. Okay. <clears throat> and those levels changed um, when you lesioned areas that you thought were projecting to somewhere. Okay. And, um, but there was a lot of skepticism. I mean, when I was at Hopkins, the head of physiology, Vernon Mountcastle, mm -hmm. he didn't really even believe in transmitters. He oh, really only believed in electrical transmission. And it was only sort of during the time period I was getting my PhD that he started to, well, okay, maybe there's some transfer. What time was that, roughly? That was uh, 1969 to 1973. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Mountcastle, I think, is, is, is uh, still very much known for the cortex and so on. So, so he did a, a lot and of, of cool stuff there, but it's so interesting to hear that back in the day he was um, not believing in, in your yeah, yeah. 
Very, very exciting. So it, it's always, you know, it's so hard to, as, as a young person, to understand these things retrospectively. If you, you know, read the literature, let's say, backward in time, it, it's very hard to understand that. And I, I feel only talking to people that lived at the time and, and did research at the time can really, you know, um, yeah. embed us into this um, <clears throat> field and this feeling. So, so that's really, really amazing. So um, I guess uh, the next and, and maybe even bigger, um, or I don't know if it's bigger, but the, another really big highlight of your career is, of course, the circuitry model of the basal ganglia and cortical, thalamic cortical interactions. And um, I think I told you in the last episode of the podcast, I interviewed Melon DeLong, and uh, a key focus there was also the model of the basal ganglia. Um, and I think now brushing over history it was is often referred to as the Albin de Long model. And often again, like two key papers are being cited, one from your team in, at Ann Arbor and one from John Hopkins, where de Long um, worked at the time. So Ann Arbor, Michigan, that, that, that paper um, was authored by Roger Albin and then yourself and your late husband, John Penny. And everybody so, called him Jack. Jack. Okay. <laughs> Good to yeah. know. Good to know. So, so when I asked Melon what the contributions between the two teams had been, again, very hard to disentangle now from, you know, looking back, um, he mentioned, he didn't say too much, but he mentioned that, that um, your laboratory had focused a bit more on the motor domains of the basic ganglia, while a key contribution of his team, um, also together with Alexander and then also Hage Bergman and so on, was, had been the parallel loops um, of the basal ganglia with motor associative and limbic domains. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? Do you have the same memory? <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on this? Yes, actually, um, yes and no, what he says. Um, Kemp and Powell also looked at some of these circuits through, through associative and limbic others, um, cortices. Um, we had... Um, what happened with uh, my husband, Jack, and I was that when we came to the University of Michigan, we took over a movement disorders clinic, yes. and we saw a lot of different kinds of movement disorders, and we, were, we had had no formal training, you know, like gone to Marsden or Fawn or somebody else. We had just obtained our experience right, seeing the patients. <clears throat> and both of us were struck by how the descriptions in the literature were not really that descriptive of what the patients actually look like. Okay. So we made an example. Well, yes. Um, if you ask a Parkinson's patients to tap their fingers. Yeah. They may start off slowly, but then it gets faster and faster and faster, almost faster than you can do it. And then you ask them to stop, and it takes a little while to stop. Mm. Well, that's odd, right? Yeah. So, and there were a bunch of other things um, that just didn't make sense with the old way of thinking that, Parkinson's is slow and, you know, Huntington's is fast and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So we started saying, okay, what pathways have which transmitters? 
because if the cortical um, striatal pathway is glutamate, then what is the striatum doing? You know, itself. So we started to make these lesions to see what happened downstream. And in doing that, we had to measure um, in our hands receptor um, concentrations and uh, affinities because we had um, hypothesized that if you remove, say, a GABAergic input to a neuron, that it would become super sensitive and increase the number of GABA receptors, right? Okay. So this required looking at an anatomy and a drug effect or a drug binding. So we really, um, the two of us invented the tritium-sensitive quantitative autoradiography that you could do with um, tritium-sensitive film. Oh, interesting. And, um, and so you could be very quantitative about it. And we were able to show that, you know, one pathway had to hook with another, with another, with another, um, if this circuit was going to make any sense. But there were also <clears throat> experiments we did where the outcome was not what we predicted. And that, you asked about eureka moments, that's where we go like, what? And then we go, ah, it has to be that there's both a direct and an indirect pathway. There has to, you can't just say the striatum does something to things and it's all the same. No, it's very different. And um, now, Malin Talong in his chat with you, uh, he did mention the fact that we worked on rodents. And in yeah. fact, we did. And that he worked on primates. Now, unfortunately, he may have worked on primates, but we worked on humans as well, on human brains, post-mortem human brains. And we really published everything that we had discovered in the rodent, in the human brain, with Roger Albin and Tony Reiner and a bunch of us. And that made a lot of sense of how the circuit could be put together and whether you would predict that Parkinson's disease would have an overactive subthalamic nucleus and you could lesion them there. Interesting. Or globus pallidus interna. So to, to ask a few naive questions. So in humans, was it was it post-mortem then you, you measured yep. con concentrations of the, uh, or you made lesions as well afterwards? No, no, so no that, lesions. That's not possible, right? Okay, and and then in the rodents, like what was the general method? So you you made lesions, but then you yep. um, afterwards and before the lesion, you measured the concentration of the um, transmitters in the receiving part, or where you made the lesion, or or both, or how, both. How, both, both, yeah. You you could measure the receptor concentrations, yeah, 
throughout the striatum and projection areas. You could get a nice cut through where you could hit all of them and get measurements that weren't just, you know, one concentration, but you could do a whole dose response curve. You could do a whole inhibition curve, like are there better benzodiazepines for the external globus pallidus than for the internal globus pallidus? Yeah, Yeah, there probably are. You know, that kind of thing that we could do and say. Who who came up with the direct and indirect pathway terms? Do you remember? It was actually a guy named McKenzie. He was John McKenzie, who worked before either Malin or I, I think. And I believe he's from the UK. Okay. And uh, did work, and he coined it, but didn't coin it based on either of our stuff, you know. <clears throat> I see. Okay. And where, where the dopamine receptors already known there at the time, so so that you had D1 and D2 receptors, or was that also part of that? Oh, that was a big part of it. So I was, um, uh, when Jack and I first got to Michigan, there was a guy at um, Michigan State University uh, named Steve Katai, and he had a group of physiologists including, I don't know whether you know a guy named Charlie Wilson. Um, Anyway, they're great physiologists. And they were taking the place apart with uh, electrophysiology. And Jack and I went over to see them and we're talking to them and we're going like, hey, yeah, but the dopamine is inhibitory on the striatum. And they're going, no way. And we're going, well, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the pharmacology, the dopamine and acetylcholine are kind of at um, odds with each other, and that's perfect for inhibitory. No, 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 they said. When we come in there and are recording from the striatum, Dopamine is always excitatory. <laughs> so now we're going like, how can that be? <clears throat> and we, I would say it took a, a year or so, you know, talking with these guys back and forth. Yeah. Also, looking at the localization of D1 in substance P cells versus D2 and and Keflin cells. Those were all really important things to uh, understand. Absolutely. It's so so funny that that I think it's always harder to to accept that it's both. You know, if you you say it's excitatory or inhibitory, that becomes the question. And you you rarely think it's it's going to be both, right? But um, I can imagine how how tough that is. But it was so perfect talking to this physiologist who said, no, it has two different effects. Mm -hmm. Or no, it has an excitatory effect. If it has an inhibitory one, we don't know what it is. (laughs) Okay. 
you know, and then it became clear. Great. So, yeah, together with, with your late husband, so Jack, you mentioned John, John Penny, you had started a laboratory at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, studying the anatomy and pharmacology of basal ganglia. Um, so, so you already mentioned a bit that you, you started also clinical work together and you, you right. essentially led the movement disorders group. Was that the main motivation to even think about, hey, let's map the basal ganglia, let's create a model, or did the model rather emerge with, you know, bits and pieces of evidence that came in your experiments? Or was it like, when, when did the idea of creating a basal ganglia model emerge? Oh, pretty much right from the beginning. I mean, okay. which just, my husband was an anatomist, so he always was thinking the anatomy. And I was pretty good on the pharmacology. And um, <clears throat> he was, my husband was photographic memory and he could speed read. So you, uh, I, I grew up dyslexic. So my husband, though, could read everything by the time uh well i was in medical school we met very early and i realized that he could read all the assignments and tell me he he could summarize really well wow. and okay. so um uh and that was true you know when we came home in the evening after we had put the kids to bed then we Uh, he would read papers, and I would read abstracts that he told me to read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's how we did that. That's very interesting. It, it also seemed like, I, th I read that somewhere, probably also on Wikipedia or on, on, on a different page that summarized your, your work, that, that you also divided, um, as you said, also then the clinical work. I think yeah. um, you were... So your husband um, uh, was more focusing on hypokinetic movement disorders, you more on hyperkinetic. So your disease essentially was Huntington's, his was Parkinson's a bit. Yeah, mine was Huntington's and tick disorders. Yeah. Tick disorders, okay. okay. Yeah. And, then, and then also, I think, as you mentioned, he, he did um, anatomy. And then I think he was also, um, you know, computationally. Oh, yeah, very big. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. And then yours was pharmacology. That it 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 sounds so lovely that you you know apparently um uh you know um made a whole together uh a, a yeah. Whole. So um you mentioned uh, that you grew up dyslexic. How did that impact maybe to to briefly intervene your your career or your you know how how did that work out? Because you were super successful, right? So it's maybe encouraging to talk about this for others. Well, I was very lucky um i didn't get any help i was in the uh time period when nobody cared if you were dyslexic um and um and the problem was i was so slow in reading that i couldn't finish tests or anything um and by the time i went to college I couldn't take many of the courses because they required too much reading. So I did have some trouble um, getting past English, for instance, yeah. okay. and that kind of thing. <clears throat> But in terms of reading science, everybody reads science kind of slowly. So sure. I, I wasn't 
you know, proportionally that much slower reading science than the others. That's a good so, point. Yeah. But Jack changed the whole thing. So you'd be able to, he could focus in and read this stuff and tell me. Great, interesting. So, so um, maybe going back to the to the model, how how much of it would you think is still true today? Probably well, tough question, but uh, that's a tough question. But I think it is still providing sort of a um, a scaffolding on which people hang their hypotheses and. There is so much new work that also deserves new hypotheses, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I think that's coming out a lot with opt optogenetics and yeah. some of the other approaches, which are really, you know, if we had them back in our time, yeah. it sure would have been exciting. But seeing it now is also wonderful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Super. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it's such a you know helpful construct that um, even even if it helps just to you know motivate more complicated additions to to the concept, it's still helpful. I think I totally agree. It's it's still taught today the direct indirect yes. pathway, and I think it's a good way, a good thing that it is. So mm -hmm. it um it at least gives us a good and fairly simple understanding maybe of the um, basal ganglia and then we can add on to it so yeah maybe maybe um speaking about uh the next disease so roger albin uh, who was the first author on on that um main or one of the key papers um now occupies a faculty position still in michigan which is named in your honor the andy young collegiate professor of neurology and um I Googled him from his profile. He seems to also study Huntington's disease. And um, that was a big topic for you as well. So 1981, you traveled with Nancy Wexler to Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela. Can uh, you tell us? Maracaibo. Maracaibo. <clears throat> yep, yep. Can you tell us some something about that? Why did you go there? Well, I would say that um, I went because I uh, was seeing Huntington's patients in Michigan. I had inherited actually uh, quite a large number of patients with Huntington's. And frankly, this was an opportunity of a lifetime to be able to go with the team to a remote country, try to examine all of them sample all of them but but why 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 even go there so is apparently we have to tell the listeners there's a population of hunting huge popular well yes. let me that's I, a I'll key, key, key key information okay yeah uh, yeah i'll back up because in 1972 um was the 100-year anniversary of george huntington writing about hunting, describing Huntington's for the first time. And, um, and at that meeting was a guy who showed a film of what appeared to be Huntington's disease down in Venezuela. And it was as if the entire town was part of a Huntington's family. So in 1979, Nancy Wexler 
They had been looking for a big family because the geneticist said recombinant techniques now allow us to map through the family if we have a big enough family. So that was David Hausman who came up with this. And so when Nancy saw the size of this family down in Venezuela, we, uh, she arranges to go down and I'm the lucky one who gets asked to go down uh, as a neurologist. And there were three others of us, but I'm going down to be part of the group that goes down to the town on stilts down in a lagoon. Well, it was a pretty unbelievable experience. And I did it for 22 years in a row. And well, I must... Uh, uh, well, going down to Venezuela just for maybe three weeks a year yeah, and then coming back. Um, but during that time period, we got thousands of blood samples, skin samples, and sperm samples <coughs> on people and brain samples on people. And, um, and that's how the gene was. Isolating, so. Very cool. Can can you like draw us a picture a bit of, of, of how that town worked? Like, if, if so many people there are affected with the disease, do they have you know specific cultural things in place or? Well, they um, they live off the fish. They fish out of the lake, okay. and they sell if they can some fish so they can buy some vegetables and other things. All very impoverished. Okay. You know, living in, when they lived in Maracaibo, they might have a cement house, okay. but chances are it's tin and cardboard. And um, <clears throat> you get out to the outer towns and there it's definitely tin, cardboard, um, a, a floor that's basically made of packed garbage. And um, everybody's living and one family, you know, um, may be affected by multiple members with HD. And then the kids and unaffected members try to take care of them, but mm. that's not easy. Sure. And... Um, it, it, it's just a very, very um, moving um, environment. Yeah. Tried to help them as best we could. Sure, sure. I want to bring a therapy back to them. That, that'd be great, yeah. <laughs> Good <laughs> yeah. point. So, so, so it, it led to, as you mentioned, discovery of the, of the gene. Um, I read that Jim Guzella was, was the probably first author that, that um, discovered the loc location of the gene. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, can you, can you summarize, you know, how that happened and what it, like how long it took and um, how that maybe in emerged from, from your it project? It took in two Venezuela? years. We started yes, okay. sending him samples in 1981. By 1983, he had the location of the gene, okay. not the actual gene but the location on the short arm of chromosome four. Yeah. But it took 10 years 
for the final identification of the mutation as an expanded CAG repeat. And uh, that then was the, the, the key thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for, for also for their diagnostic tests and so on. But yeah, very, very interesting. The, oh. Yeah, bringing, bringing back a, a cure. Um, I wish that that uh, will, will happen soon. So, so you, you, I think you continued Huntington's work and you also found it then, um, I think, soon uh, after that. So at least in 1991, you were appointed chief of neurology at MGH at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, and also the Julian Dorn Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. And mm -hmm. um, that is such a key achievement, maybe for the international listeners that might not know MGH, it's, it's rare, but this is probably the best, one of the best hospitals in the world. And um, the neurology services is really ex excellent there. And um, you were also the first female service chief in the hospital's 180 year history and also the first female chief of neurology at a teaching hospital in the United States. So um, that, that is such a great honor. And uh, can you tell us a bit, you know, was there a secret to this or was it, um, you know, hard work or what, what led to it? Um, um, no, I don't think there was a secret any more than I was a very outspoken person. Yeah. And um so I guess, uh, you know, I, I kind of expected those things I, in a way. Um, going to MGH, uh, that was one of the things that drew me to going to MGH is if I could be the first woman head of a service. And I know they asked me, what I wanted to do with the service. And I just told them, I want to make this the best neurology service in the world. Oh. And I meant it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, and I tried my best. I don't know whether I succeeded, but did a fairly good job. I, I'm sure you did. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But very nice. So, so that, that's so interesting that um, it, it seems like some genius people like you may have that. I once heard Bob Dylan say something similar that he said he just as a, as a kid, he knew he was exceptional, you know, and yeah. it's uh. kind of it's tough to, to, to say it, um, you know, or, or I, you then wonder if what's the selection bias here, right? How many people think they are exceptional but are not? <laughs> yes. But um, apparently for the two of you, there must be some... Uh, just inner feeling or um, knowledge that you'll, you'll succeed and, and get there. This is, um, yeah, I didn't doubt myself. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there was a story. I don't know whether you find any stories, but when I got to medical school at Hopkins, I um, went to the dean because there wasn't any MD, PhD program designed yet. The dean said, you design it yourself. So I said, I'd like to take the first two and a half required years of medical school courses. And then I want to take the last year and a half elective courses as part of my PhD. Okay. And the dean said, okay. And I said, can I have that in writing? Yeah. 
And I got it in writing. And then I went to the head of the pharmacology department and I did the same thing. Will you count the biochemistry course and the physiology course and uh, from medical school for your PhD in pharmacology? Yes. Ah, can I have that in writing, please? <laughs> Great. When I went to actually get my PhD, they called me into an office and said, Anne, it looks like you're getting your PhD in one year. I was going to get the whole thing in five years. And they said, that's too fast. It looks like we're giving out cheap PhDs at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I really don't think so. Um, I did get quite a few publications out of it. You approved my thesis. And you put in writing that that's okay. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of looked at me and I said, yes, I still have those letters in writing where you promised I could do this. And let me tell you, I said to them, if you refuse to give me the PhD, I will make sure that Every student I hear of that is applying to Hopkins, they know that you guys aren't keeping your word. Wow. That's and then I worked okay. out. <laughs> yeah. And it worked. So you yeah. got it in record time. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Very, very cool. Thanks for sharing that. So. So um, yeah, it's really so impressive um, how much you accomplished. We, we get to other things as well, but then at MGH, you you um, you did and you know uh, now continuing the work on Huntington's disease, maybe with a cure later. You founded the MGH Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases, so the Mind Institute, and um, apparently were given an entire building in the nearby Navy Yard. Is is that mm -hmm. close to the Martino Center? Um, here in, yeah. in Boston, yeah, okay, yeah. So, so how was that like to you know create a building? I mean, it would be tough for me to create a, a smaller lab with a few few um, rooms, but a, a building that's a big thing, right. right? Well, my husband and I were um keen on trying to get a group of investigators together who would all complement each other and who were all good collaborators. And I knew this building was coming up uh, for proposals because I was on a space committee and I'm saying, so who's made a proposal? And at the time, the person said, nobody. Mm -hmm. So I said, You're getting, a so I made up in a week, I made up a proposal for um, using all the space, you know, who the investigators would be, what their grant status is, how many square feet they should be covering, uh, you know, you name it, all the layout, and um, got my husband to put some spreadsheets together for me. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, this is the way we'd work. And then I put it together and submitted it. And uh, 
big meeting I had to go to. He was out. It was right before he died. He was out in Aspen skiing with my daughter. I presented this and they gave me the building. You know, they said, this sounds like a really use, good use of that space. And um, I had done some space dealing, trades, and this and that and the other thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah. That's amazing. It was really fun. Is, is that still in use in the same function? Oh, you yeah. Know, the mind? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Super. Very nice. You, you were also uh, then speaking about more success. You were president of the SFN, the Society for Neuroscience, from 2003 to 2004. And then of the ANA, so the American Neurological Association, from 2003 to 2005, making you apparently the only person in history that had both um, both titles uh, in their CV. Um, again, the same question: What led to the success? Maybe it's the same answer, but or how, yeah, how did you, any tips of how how did you do that? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think somebody must have thought I'd be good at it. Um, sure. And, um, yeah, so they voted me in. I mean, there were small committees, I think, that do it. I don't think it's like, it's not like you're voted in by some giant sure. number. Sure. So. And, I mean, as chief of the MGH, that that probably helps, right, to, um, to get there. Yeah. yeah. So, so. Maybe to wrap up already um, slowly with some rapid fire questions um, that are easier to answer. So, so speaking about success, do you have any tips or thoughts about females in neuroscience and medicine? So especially any advice to young researchers or clinicians, especially female, but maybe also young in general, um, people entering the field? Yes, the thing is that you, uh, and this is females particularly, but either male or female, You have to really think hard about what you're worth and you should not feel shy at all about asking for what you're worth. And, but you should be able to show somebody why you're worth that much. Yeah. See what I mean? So you have to have like some kind of proposal or vision or, return on investment. If you give me this much, I'll bring back this grant, you know, that kind of thing. But you have to stick up for yourself. Most women don't say, I need a raise. Yeah. And um, that's not true. The guys all do, you know, and everybody needs a raise. <laughs> <laughs> that's the quote of the day, certainly. Yeah. 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 So... You know, uh, that's the main thing. I, I think, um, uh, I do think you don't want to be, uh, you know, women are often said to be a bitch or something like that. Um, and so you do have to be careful that you don't get to be called one, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, that sometimes with people, women who are trying to stick up maybe a little too much for themselves, you know, you don't want you know, to try to say that you're the greatest thing. On, on Interesting, Earth. though. I mean, can, can you elaborate a bit more? Because I would, I could, you know, argue that probably if, 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 if men 
stick up as much they are not being called a bitch so you know off right so so um isn't that still unjust that you know as, as a woman if you maybe ask too much often in our culture you you would already seem more greedy than a male that would do the same so isn't yes that part of the problem well i agree except that there are some women who are just evil Okay. And <laughs> there are many too, but yeah, yeah, okay. Well, yeah. Uh, as I, it was interesting when I was mm. being interviewed to come to Mass General, the head of psychiatry asked, Well, how do you deal with these, you know, men, women, sexual harassment? And my answer was, Well, really, when it comes right down to it, men can be jerks and women can be jerks. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want either one of them around. You want people who are going to try to help you, put you in a better place. You know, that's what you want. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, not people who are trying to prove their value over yours and, you know, all that kind of thing. Absolutely. So we, we briefly talked about that dyslexia um, and and were there other issues in your career that struggle that you struggled with or other you know fallbacks in in, in or, or you know episodes where you thought this was a waste of my time like um, negative things in the career of a scientist or clinician. Um, no, I mean sometimes they asked you to be on too many committees and things mm -hmm. like that. I think my biggest problem was um, I, I have a very bad temper. Okay. And um, after Jack died, um, I became extremely depressed and um, saw a psychiatrist who said that, you know, based on my history, I'd been bipolar my whole life. And You know, the temper was part of that. And thank God I had a husband who kind of tried to damp it down for me. Okay. And, um, yeah, and I got good treatment. And um, that's really made a huge difference. So, Okay. Did, did the manic phases or the positive phases of it then, then help sometimes? Like give you oh, energy yeah. to write grants or, you know. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there were times when I had an incredible energy level for doing yeah. things. Just this building, for instance, yeah. you know, the whatever, putting together the proposal and this and that. And that. Yeah, I would have those phases, but then I'd have a lot of bad depression. Mm -hmm. um, All right. Maybe speaking about not anymore about failures, but about the opposite. I mentioned or you mentioned eureka moments before. So mm -hmm. and we have talked about some, but was there any other moment that we didn't cover yet where you thought, wow, this now I understood it or, or this is such a success or things in your career? Positive. Um, moments. No, I, I <laughs> well, I tell you, there was the like huge enthusiasm that I think everybody in the Huntington's field felt when these new antisense oligonucleotides 
had come forward to be tested by Ionis and Roche together. Yeah. And that went into a clinical trial that everybody so hopeful for because it reduced Huntington in the brain. Yeah. And then, you know, out of the blue, the data monitoring committee stopped the study and stopped it saying that the patients were getting worse, worse than the placebo. And it was as if, well, for me, I felt like I had been stabbed in the heart. You know, for me, it was like, this was, geez, this could be it. This could be one of the first actual effective therapies. Yeah. And, you know, I, another company had a similar approach. It also had to be stopped. So now everybody's going like, holy cow, you know, what, what, the, what do we do next? Yeah. But there are people working on things on this. Sure, 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 of course. Yeah. What do you think about maybe, we, we, this is a podcast about deep brain simulation, and obviously your work is very instrumental for, for yes. that as well. But, but what do you think about deep brain simulation for Huntington's disease, maybe? Well, I, um, I've referred people for it. Um, I, it's hard to know how much better they were. Um, I think in the beginning they were somewhat, but then I also think there was a certain amount of um, neglect of their other of the side that was better. Yeah. Okay. There was also some, to me, some seeming neglect. I don't know why, and I but I didn't do it on many more patients. Have you done done any? So. Just rarely, rarely done. We had with one case, uh, interestingly, with subthalamic um, DBS uh, charity uh-huh. that did really well. So um, uh-huh. interestingly, and um, but it might be so. You know, my, my specialty is to localize the electrodes precisely, and it might have been even that it was pallidothalamic tracts that that were you know just traversing, yeah, dorsal yeah. to the STN, and um, but that patient. I would say, and that was, I think, the only real case we had at, in Berlin. And I just started here in Boston, so I haven't had much experience here. But, but in and that patient, I think it, it's fair to say that without the therapy, um, you know, it was even life prolonging yeah. for him. So, so in so that case, but it's a, it's an N equals one. So I don't have much experience. Now. Maybe a general question: How did your clinical activities nurture your scientific understanding, and vice versa? Oh, it was, um, I just feel very strongly that MD, PhD, you know, uh, particularly when I split it the way I did, where, you know, what I was doing in the laboratory directly reflected on what I would see in the clinic and vice versa, you know, and you could ask certain patients, what their tasks were. It's always amazing to me that um, a Parkinson's patient could be um, slow and tremulous on one side, right? And totally dyskinetic on the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And, um, and, and that was amazing to me. And then when you watch the whole sequence going between, you know, bilateral Parkinsonism to then changes across the body, you know, uh, those things to me were just fascinating. And so Absolutely. to look at those in the lab was awesome. So it made you a better scientist and a better clinician, probably. I hope so. Yeah, yeah I do so, hope so. So you would, and, and then maybe, um, uh, so you, you would still say apparently that the clinician scientist career is a viable one to pursue, to pursue today. But do you also see that the density of actions in the clinic or that the speed, maybe the pace has become faster and that, that it might become more, let's say, in both science and clinical practice, that it might become unsustainable or harder to sustain these days? Do you see that? I, I do think so. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's, um, I think it's just horrible what medicine has become, you know, with this uh, uh, high turnover and mm. quick, 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 you know, in the last years of um, practicing at Mass General, I, um, I, I doubled the time I gave myself for every patient because I just said, I'm in this to help the patient and it's not going to help me any. And, um, but it's actually one of the things I do now instead of practicing is I fundraise for the okay. department. And fundraising does allow for some people to get some support to make their clinic, make them not so dependent on every patient they see. Yeah. 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 That's, that's good. So what do you think about the future of neurology? What concepts might emerge um, in 10 years oh. or in five years? The oh, cure for Huntington's? Man. Well, no, I do really hope And, and I think there's possibilities that we'll have a cure for Huntington's. A much better cure, I think, for Parkinson's. And who knows? I mean, so far, the Alzheimer's stuff is flunked, even though they approved that drug, which I think was yes. a mega mistake. But, um, you know, they, they may come out with something, which would be exciting. Yeah. Um, But I think in the next 10, 20 years, I think it's very likely that there'll be therapies available. And then deep brain stimulation for things. I think the main thing that has to happen is it has to become available in remote parts of the world if it's ever really going to take off. That's so I guess yeah. um, focused ultrasound and other kinds of things can so have like... You're going to have bring your you pistol on your belt and bring it out. <laughs> <laughs> so bringing the cost down or like making it more scalable yeah. probably, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Right. Right. Are there missed opportunities we should be taking at the moment? Things you think we should be doing, but we're not in the field, both science oh. and clinical care? Well, I think, and it's not clear at all. I don't, we're not collecting everybody's blood samples for DNA. But and we should, we should be, okay. yeah. And uh, that at the very least. And um, 
yeah, I, I, you know, people should also be offering themselves up for trials pre-diagnosis. You know, my mother had Alzheimer's. Yeah. Can you know, check me into a study sooner rather than later? That kind of thing I think is critical. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So, so are there any topics before we uh, wrap up that we did not cover today, but you would have loved to talk about? I know it was a long dis uh, discussion already, but anything well, you wanted to no, talk about? This is fun. All right, Professor Young. So, so thank you so much. This was really great. Um, all the best. Um, I envy you in yeah. the nature with loons and your dog and uh, um, hope you have a pleasant day. Thank, thank you. you so much. Really enjoyed it.